ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. We're going to start today about 550 million years ago when something quite extraordinary happened on this planet. Suddenly and simultaneously, groups of animals appeared, weird animals, and they began to take over a planet that was once owned by single-celled creatures. This was a biological Big Bang of sorts, and the very beginning of our family tree, which evolved over the following 20 million years. Now, 20 million years might sound like a very long time, but in evolutionary terms, it's just a blip. This was a rate of growth that's never been seen again on Earth. Diego Garcia Belido is here. Diego was consumed by this time period, an epoch known as the Cambrian Explosion, when complex life on Earth rose and rose and rose. Diego was a paleontologist at the South Australian Museum and at the University of Adelaide. And Diego, who is Spanish-born, was drawn to South Australia because on Kangaroo Island which was underwater all those millions of years ago, there's a site that is rich in fossils from that era. And these are not just skeletons. These are fossils that have somehow still preserved the soft tissue, the preserved guts and eyes and skin and even nervous systems from these strange alien-like creatures still intact after hundreds of millions of years. Hi, Diego. Hi. It's a pleasure to be here, Richard. This time period is called, as I said, the Cambrian Explosion. Speaking generally, what can you tell us about what happened in this era? Well, basically, the first geological period of the Phanozoic, the time in the planet where there's multicellular life, saw the huge, as you just mentioned, the diversification, the radiation of all of the big animal groups we see today. So the arthropods with the jointed appendages, the mollusks with their shells, the uh, echinoderms, even our ancestors, the chordates, appear for the first time in the fossil record in the Cambrian. So it's a very rapid sort of filling of the ecological barrel. So everything is up for grabs and animals become really good at exploiting the various empty niches. And that's why very rapidly within 15 to 20 million years, we see an occupation of all of those possibilities of uh, making a living. What did the world look like before they appeared on the scene? So uh, the Ediacara biota is the one preceding the Cambrian explosion. The Ediacaran geological period is the one just immediately before the Cambrian, so at about 550 million years ago. And we see a world that is occupied in, on its surface by microbes, by cyanobacterial filaments and other bacteria. And on top of that sediment, we begin to see multicellular organisms. This doesn't mean they're all animals. There are a lot of things there that are just making a living, some of them feeding from the microbial mat, some from uh, uh, particles, food particles in suspension, uh, and, and, you know, a very quiet environment where nobody was eating nobody. And that changed with the uh, beginning of animals. And because, as you know, animals feed, need to feed from other things. And that was the beginning of the arms race that we see in the Cambrian and is still ongoing today. The planet would have been mostly underwater at that time? Not the planet as such. Life was all marine. So in terms of how much emerged land, there would have been similar to what there is today, give or take. But 
the the continents would have been totally barren. There was no life on land. So any any big storm would have swept a lot of sand from those continents, eroded into the basins that trapped the Ediacrobiota of the Flinders Ranges. And also in the younger Cambrian, the fossils from Kangaroo Island, those, those Burgess Shale type fossils, those soft part preserved uh, bodies uh, in the perimeter of what was Australia at the time, which was basically just the western part of the continent. The eastern hadn't been deposited yet. Right, so life is all underwater and the the land such as it is, is barren and rocky. And where was Australia? Was it roughly in the same position as today on the planet or was it floating somewhere else? Because as the continents move around, Australia has had many positions. At the Ediacaran and Cambrian time, it was actually straddling the equator. Adelaide would have been at latitude about, you know, between zero and, and 15 degrees north or south. So we were on tropical, equatorial to tropical waters. So it, that, that means there's a lot of sunlight. Uh, the shallow environments that we, uh, we preserve in the Flinders Ranges were teeming with life, but that life wasn't like the one we see today. It's a very alien life. Uh, and to some extent, that's why this is attracting the, the, the attention of, of uh, NASA, uh, which is supporting our research in the Flinders Ranges, because if we go to another planet, we're not going to see what we see around us today. We're probably going to see things that have very little to do with, you know, humans walking around or, or trees covering, covering the land. We would be seeing organisms probably in the water and, uh, and it would look very different, more like the Ediacans than what we see in the Cambrian. So this world before the Cambrian explosion had life, had these single, very, very kind of very basic creatures. I know this might be a silly question, but were any of them wriggling? Diego, I mean, were they moving? I mean, were they, yes. were they right? Well, uh, n- only at the end of the Ediacaran. So we've got life, we believe, starts at about, the first record we've got of it is about 3.7 billion years. So the planet is four and a half billion. Uh, as soon as it cools down and we have uh, uh, liquid water in the oceans, soon after that, we probably have life. And the first evidence of life is about 3.7 billion years. And it's about 3.3 billion years of single cell life. It's at the end of the Ediacaran that we begin to see cells sticking together and living together to create multicellular organisms. Uh, until then, it's just filaments or, or single cells floating in, in, the, in the oceans. Uh, and yes, some of those early complex life in the Ediacaran were already moving. They were wiggling around. Some of them were even capable of scratching that microbial mat that was covering the shallow, very well-lit uh, tropical waters and feeding from it. So yes, we begin to see movement in the very latest Ediacaran, not before that. So these creatures are living off, I'm guessing here, sunlight for photosynthesis and the nutrients from the water and the soil that are sort of floating around them. These are not <laughs> carnivorous, if that's the word, or they're not predators, these, these creatures. What happens when the first predators start to evolve, when the life gets more complex and you have multi-cell creatures that need to eat other creatures. That's the beginning of it all. That's that's when we get the beginning of the Cayman explosion. So with the appearance of predation, meaning animals are feeding on other things, those other things, especially their animals, they need to defend themselves. Otherwise, their genes won't get passed on to the next generation, which is what we're all here for. What happens is that you need to defend yourself. And there's many ways of doing that. You can uh, secrete a, a skeleton, 
and that's what mollusks did. They have the shell that protects them, bivalves and snails and so on. Or you can have spines, and that's what sponges did. They have these mineral spines that is going to stop a predator from chewing on them or try to deter it at least. Uh, or you have to move into the sediment, burrow yourself into the sediment away from the predator or swim into the water column or hide under a rock, etc. So this is the beginning of this arms race that was started with those earliest predators. And as you were saying at the beginning, the very rapid evolution that we saw in the Cayman in this filling of the ecological, empty ecological barrel up to then has never been seen afterwards, even after the mass extinctions. So mass extinctions are... After, the, after a few millions of years, the planet recovers and there's a lot of empty niches that can be occupied. And there are new diversifications, radiations of animals. That's what happened after the dinosaurs and the giant reptiles like ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs died out. That a lot of space uh, niches were vacant and that's where mammals began to radiate because there were so, so many empty po- uh, you know, possibilities for making a living. So there's nothing going on very much for, for millions and millions and millions of years and suddenly we get these multi-celled animals that are eating other animals and then bang, there's a feeding frenzy uh, and there's very rapid fire evolution It's uh, in this arms race, you're saying. Absolutely, absolutely. What animals do some of these very early creatures relate to in the modern world? Do we have anything in the modern world that resemble them at all? Yes, there are a few animals that have some resemblances with modern uh, animals today. So things that may look externally like horseshoe crabs, and these are the trilobites. They've got a hard exoskeleton outside to protect them, just like modern-day crayfish and lobsters do. Um, And those would look somewhat like what we see today. And we also have uh, mollusks, very early mollusks, that are not that different from what snails would look like today. Um, We have even some early uh, ancestors of ours, some of the earliest fishes begin in the Cambrian, and they look somewhat similar to very simple fish. Um, So yes, you can see already that we're beginning to see um, similar forms to the ones we have around us today, but not exactly the same. Diego, I wonder if this is in any way similar, but when my kids were really young, we bought them uh, a little sachet of something that was called, uh, called billabong bugs. And you know these things? They're like, they, they yep. come in a little egg form. They are triops. triops. Yeah, yeah. It's a species called uh, uh, Triops australiensis. And uh, they're distinct because they have three eyes. And we put them in a, in a fish bowl, you know, <laughs> watch the eggs hatch. And they turned into what looked like little trilobites. Absolutely. And, and then they began to eat each other, Diego. Then they yeah. began to consume each other. There was like, a, you know, two dozen of them. Then there was 12. Then there was four. <laughs> and then there was one. <laughs> one big one. <laughs> one yeah. big one. That was wild. Yeah. Well, that's animal life. That's what we do. We eat other things and, and it's, you know, survival of the fittest. Darwin already mentioned that. Uh, and I think it's, uh, it just applies at, ev- at every level. So when these first animals emerge, do they change the entire planet in, in its shape and form and the composition of the atmosphere and the water? Yes. Well, there, there are things that are going to you know, happening uh, in the environment that are affecting animal life and vice versa. So things like oxygen thresholds, we seem, the, uh, the geological record seems to be telling us that there is a gradual increase in oxygen and that they might have, we might have crossed or the planet might have crossed during the Ediacaran Cambrian an oxygen threshold that allow for animals to grow in three dimensions. The Ediacarans are mostly bidimensional. They're flat as pancakes in a lot of the cases. So uh, an increase in oxygen allows for that oxygen to get to the cells. But for that to happen, you need organs. And those organs and those gills that are absorbing the oxygen 
uh, through their, their cuticle and moving that to the center of the body to reach the inner layers allows those bodies to grow and to be more active. Muscles need oxygen. And in the absence of oxygen, you cannot have things running around very uh, fast because they just don't have the energy to do that. So yes, we animals evolved in parallel with the planet, but also we change what happens around us. For instance, during the Carboniferous, there was a lot more oxygen than today. Today we have about 21% oxygen in our atmosphere. Back then we were reaching 30% uh, oxygen in the atmosphere and above, which was uh, starting fires uh, even without spark. And that was because of the life in the planet. That was There were the plants producing that oxygen, the big uh, forests of the Carboniferous that have produced the coal that we have used for, for, uh, for many centuries centuries and hope to, you know, <laughs> start cutting down on, the, on that consumption. Um, and, and yes, this is the normal path of the planet is that the biosphere is exchanging. All the elements are affecting each other. Now, we've had evolutionary theory since Charles Darwin. When did people become aware that this was a thing, the Cambrian explosion, and how did they fit that into the models they had at the time of how life arose on Earth? Well, actually, Darwin himself was all already aware that there was something that he couldn't explain, and that was Darwin's dilemma. Uh, his dilemma was, wait a minute, if I say that evolution is a very slow process that takes, you know, thousands and thousands of years, and that there was no creation, how could we see out of the blue this emergence of animal groups in the Cambrian? And what we've realized is that that the rates of evolution were not gradual as he thought at the beginning. They changed speed. And not only that, they were ancestors to those, to that, uh, to those animals. Uh, the life didn't appear, multicellular life didn't appear out of the blue at the base of the Cambrian. And you have all of those trilobites, those mollusks, those echinoderms, the ancestors of sea urchins and sea stars, etc. But rather it goes deeper in time into the Ediacaran and further back. So it's a long line communicated of of parents and, and, and daughters or children through the eons from the first cells 3.7 billion years ago. But only that it sped up, the speed at which that was evolving changes at the end of the Ediacaran or towards the end of the Ediacaran and the beginning of the Cambrian especially. Does that mean now we now understand that life doesn't evolve up a steady line? It, it tends to sort of gallop right ahead in complexity and then we'll plateau for a very long period and then gallop ahead again? Yes. So in, in moments of changes in the environment, evolution needs to adapt. And if the, if the environment is, is stable, there is no need to adapt. You're doing what you need to do. You're, you're feeding and you're having offspring and you're passing those genes on to the next generation. Balanced environments are, you know, what is best for it, except when there are changes, say an impact from an asteroid like the KPG, uh, uh, the Cretaceous uh, paleogene extinction that wiped out the, uh, the dinosaurs, then you have to adapt. But otherwise, you're, you're doing it right. You're just, you know, maintaining your population or growing your population, maybe at the expense of somebody else. So there's always extinction. But those mass extinctions are the ones that sort of trigger these massive changes. And that's when evolution goes faster because there's more, more ways, more chances for evolution to take advantage of particular gene sets or traits. 
So that's what happened with with the with the Cambrian. Uh, it it was much much faster because anything that you invented, say an eye with many lenses, could give you such an advantage that it just propelled you forward at a much faster pace. So there's nothing for very long periods of time. We, well, not so much nothing, but there's the system, global system sort of exists in great stability until a crisis comes. As you say, a, a meteor crash or a supervolcano or something dramatically changes the conditions very quickly on Earth. There's a, a species mass extinction. And then, again, it's an open playing field that, that life can then move ahead in all these other different directions. Do you, do you sort of see any, I don't know, do you have any thoughts about the general nature of life, that it behaves in that way, There's, that life itself has certain qualities to it? It's opportunism or something, Diego? Well, what, I, what I'm seeing when I look at the Cambrian, uh, I was, uh, one of the reasons I, I, I uh, devoted my, uh, my interest, my scientific career to this is because I read Stephen Jay Gould's Wonderful Life. In it, he reevaluates uh, the discoveries of the Burgess Shale in the early 1900s and how the, Cam- the group from Cambridge University, they say, wait a minute, let's look at this in a new light and see what we're finding here. And that showed us that, wait a minute, the boxes that we see today, for instance, with arthropods, there are four classes. We've got the insects with wings and six legs and antenna. We've got the crustaceans, the mar- in general marine with 10 body uh, appendages and, and two pairs of antenna, etc. Oh. Uh, we've got the chelicerates with the chelicera, like spiders and scorpions. And then we've got the millipedes. But back then, there were a number of other types of arthropods that do not fit into any of those boxes. And the fact that there are many more groups that the ones we see around us today, these are like branches in a tree. You see a tree, the tree of life, uh, and some of those branches from the time the tree was one meter to the time it's, you know, 30 meters like today, a lot of those early branches broke off and disappeared. And all you can see is a little scar on the bark of the tree. The rest of the branch is nowhere to be found. And those early branches are the ones we see in the Cambrian. We see that the Cambrian is different than what we thought and even Darwin thought. So instead of a cone of increasing uh, complexity, as he mentioned, of diversity, what we have during the Cambrian is a major radiation. So you have a lot of small branches and then extinction cuts some of those branches and only a few are left. And those few remaining ones are the ones that we see the, the, the descendants of now, the crustaceans and, and the myriapods and, and so on. So, so the model's not so much like a tree, it's more like a slime mould that's sort of opportunistically groping its way forward to wherever the food is. <laughs> it's like a bit of a paddock with where some of those, some of those grasses do grow a little bit higher and the other ones just, you know, die out. So yes, it is not quite a, a, a cone, but rather this tapestry, this, this flat area in which from time to time you see some branches that are actually growing into trees. And the same happens now that we're looking at the Ediacaran. We look at the Ediacaran and we see, wait a minute, let's not shoehorn all of these things into early sponges, early jellyfish, early sea pants, early arthropods, etc. Maybe, maybe evolution is just trying things and some of them take hold for a few millions of years and then eventually something more effective or better adapted comes around and just, you know, causes these other forms to become extinct. And I think that that echo of the Ediacaran and the Cambrian is still pulsating there. But the number of branches from that tree that we can get new shoots out from are already determined to be 
you know, within the arthropods, an insect, a crustacean, uh, a, a myriapod, or a chelicerid. We can't invent a new type of arthropod. It's too late now. So we only have those big four classes to choose from, and that's where radiation progresses. Diego, you grew up in Madrid in Spain. Where did your interest in this kind of science begin? Uh, both my parents are biologists. They, they shared a lab. They worked on Drosophila, the fruit fly, looking at the genetics, how the development of these organisms uh, works. What are the genes activating and deactivating through from the time it's, a, it's an egg, fertilized egg, to the time it's an adult. Uh, and so during, during dinner time, we, we, you know, my family would have conversations or they, my parents, would have conversations on trying this new experiment or that other. Or we had guests coming over to dinner that were colleagues of them. And I just grew up in an environment like that, where I saw that science was a way of life. Not only that, with the sabbaticals that my parents had uh, in the mid-70s, in the uh, early 80s, and then in the 90s, one of them, we came here to Australia, just showed me that science is not only amazing because you're discovering new things, you're thinking about what's out there, but it's also allowing you to meet other people, see how other people uh, do things, meet, uh, see all the cultures, all the countries. So I thought that's what I want to be. I'll never be rich, but uh, but I'm going to have a hell of a life traveling to places like you know Australia or 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 the Saharan Desert, like I'm going next year, or Antarctica, where I went a few years ago, uh, South America, etc. So this is a, a very, it's an amazing uh, way of life. When you talked about your parents bringing colleagues around the family table for dinner, how distinguished were some of these colleagues, Diego? <laughs> Well, my father working on, on development in genetics, a lot of the people that he uh, interacted with were some of the, mo- the brightest minds. Uh, some Nobel laureates have, have been to dinner at our place. Uh, Nobel laureates like who? Among them, Francis Crick, the person who, uh, with Watson, described the, uh, the double helix structure of the DNA. Uh, we've had the people that worked on, on Drosophila by thorax complex at Lewis, a number of geneticists. And, and that's the environment I grew up with, very bright minds, having very interesting conversations, most of which I, would, I wouldn't be able to comprehend. But at least we <laughs> saw that these people were normal people, just like you and me, that they just have a passion for the science they were doing. What a treat. You had Francis Crick round the family table for dinner as a kid. Did, did all these people give you a sense, not just of the, the wonder of it all, but the pleasure of science too, the kind of pleasure that is there to be gleaned from finding out about the world? Absolutely. One of the things I find from what I remember of these occasions is that they were all enjoying life. These were happy people. Happy people because they were enjoying what they did. Sunday night and a Monday, rather than just, oh, I've got to go to work again, for them it was a discovery. It's a process of, I, need, I want to test this new theory. I want to try this other idea I had the other day. I want, to, I want to work with this colleague that's coming over from Germany or from the UK or from Canada. So it's a life where you see that these people are enjoying it. And I thought, well, you know, if I could have a bit of that, uh, I would count myself a, a, a lucky person. And, and I think I can count myself a very, very lucky person. Your parents were lab people, but you're an outdoors kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Who, who, who in your family gave you the inspiration to become an outdoors kind of science guy? My parents indeed were both uh, lab people, but out of the four siblings, I'm a biologist working on evolution. I've got two other biologist siblings, one of them 
animal behavior and the other one marine, marine sciences, and then one physicist. We enjoyed the outdoors and we would go birding and I would collect bits and pieces of, of flint that I always thought were obviously some uh, long lost arrowhead uh, from, you know, 20,000 years ago in the middle of Spain. But I think one of the ones that had the biggest influence was my grandfather, my father's father. He was an archaeologist. He, uh, he dug up uh, Roman and Greek cities around Spain and studied them. And Spain is very rich in archaeological uh, uh, remains. And, and that's where I saw that also being out in the field and digging up things can open up our understanding of the past. And, uh, and I think I sort of combined the biological aspect with the archaeological aspect of my grandfather uh, and, and ended up doing paleontology, digging up animals to try and understand how our earliest ancestors looked like and how were they related to all of their animal life. You're not a dinosaur man, as you said. You, no. you, 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 you go right to the very start, right at the very beginning. Who or what brought you to the very first animals, Diego? Uh, well, I had a, a really good lecturer and, and, and he, was a, he was a bird ecologist. So he was uh, monitoring a migration of common cranes. He was also looking into great bustards, but he didn't teach us about what he did. He taught us about the giant diversity of the animal phyla, the animal groups in the planet, from those that are biggest blue whales to those that are smaller than the sands of grain in which they live, in amongst which they live. And I think somebody that invites you to think big and, and learn from what other great minds have come up with, sort of planted that seed. It's like, wait a minute, the earliest radiation of animals is where the biggest questions are. Uh, dinosaurs are very interesting. They've got spines, they've got big teeth, etc. But they are, at the end of the, uh, the day, they're reptiles. Whereas the explosion of animal life in the Cayman is just basically the big band of all that we see around us. And that's where I saw, you know, the biggest questions are back there. And that's that's what took me to to work on early Cambrian animals and then expanded into the Ediacaran because that's where the roots of the Cambrian animals are. Podcast broadcast and online. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Diego, your first major dig was in Canada at a place called the Burgess Shale. You mentioned that uh, earlier on. How did you get the invitation to attend a dig there? Through my father, um, I, I got in touch with Simon Conway Morris because sometimes the people that work on development and the people that work on paleontology, they get together for these interdisciplinary meetings. And so my dad knew Simon Conway Morris, who's the paleontologist, one of the ones that did the sort of the revision of the Burgess Shale. And so I spent a summer with him in Cambridge looking at some uh, soft-bodied fossils from Pennsylvania. And while I was there, being a biologist, he said, well, Diego, you probably do need to get a bit of, a, a bit of experience in how geologists actually extract fossils. Uh, why don't you write to Des Collins from the Royal Ontario Museum and offer yourself 
to join them at the Burgess Shell excavations that they're leading from their Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto. And I said, yeah, sure. What are the chances? Anyway, I wrote the letter, sent it to Canada. And, uh, you know, six months later, when I had given up hope on, on ever being involved in such an enterprise, I get the letter back and from Des. And he says, Diego, if you're willing to fly yourself to Calgary, I'll pick you up. And I'm going to feed you and house you for two and a half months. And you're going to work for me digging the Burgess shell. And of course, I, I couldn't say no to that amazing offer. And that was my first contact with Burgess shell uh, fossils. Uh, and that was the first, the summer of 1995. Instead of staying in, in, in Spain and joined the summer after my last year of university, I went to Canada and worked uh, my butt off, uh, excuse my French, um, and, uh, and just basically dedicated a, a became part of this this amazing uh, discovery that is early Cambrian life. It's, it's all very well for a scientist to say, come to the Burgess Shale, but what does it mean to actually get to the Burgess Shale site, Diego? Okay, so the Burgess Shale itself, the fossil site... You have to first get yourself four, three hours from Calgary, get to the middle of the Rockies, to the boundary between Alberta and British Columbia in a little national park called Yoho, just beside Banff, which is one and Jasper, close to the, uh, that, uh, the famous skiing resorts, and, et cetera. And the Burgess Shale is about three, uh, 2,300 metres over sea level. So you have to hike you know, about a kilometre up in altitude, gain a kilometre in, 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 in altitude, and also about, you know, 10 or 12 kilometers. So it's a good three-hour hike to the Burgess Shell, to the base of the slope. And then every morning we would have to hike up the 200 meters, almost vertical slope up to the core itself. It's exhausting, but it's so rewarding. The views from up there off the landscape around you, the glaciers, the Emerald Lake just below you, uh, the f- the forest, the conifer forest, as far as the eye can see, several ranges of, of no-covered peaks and... You turn around and you got the best fossils in the planet showing or preserving the complex, early complex life of the Cambrian. So it's it's a win-win-win-win any way you look at it. Exhausting, but very rewarding. So these are fossils on the top of the Rocky Mountains. Are we to assume that they were once underwater, like the ones in uh, the Flinders Ranges and elsewhere you've been going looking at? Yes, yes. So imagine you go out into, in this case in Adelaide, you go out to the Gulf. The Gulf is being filled by sediment coming out of the Adelaide Hills. That is a process, physical process, uh, geological process that has happened over and over through the whole history of the planet. Sediments are deposited in basins, marine in most cases, and then get compressed and uplifted to form mountain ranges, right? Even the peak of Mount Everest is Cambrian to water vision in age. And there are fossils up in the peak in the top of Mount Everest. <laughs> Underwater fossils so, at the top of Mount Everest. Wow. Absolutely, because those are sediments that were deposited in marine environments many, many millions of years ago. Okay. Well, so once you get there and you see these fossils, what, tell me what's so special about the fossils that can be found in the Burgess Shale at the top of the Rockies there. So uh, fossils are mostly basically just shells and bones and exoskeletons, things that are already mineralized. Why? Because being mineralized, there's very little energy 
uh, in them for animals to feed on, first. Second, they're more resilient to being broken by the currents or by movement of the waters or sediment falling on top of them, etc. So bones, shells, and, and, and exoskeletons are the typical fossils. But in very special circumstances, like the Burgess shale, like Emu Bay shale in Kangaroo Island, all the Flinders Ranges in the Acrobiota, these organisms, the decay of the organism after its death, it stopped. In some cases, because it's buried alive, like the Ediacaran and the Burgess shale fossils, or in some cases, like the Emu Bay shale, because it's in a deep, uh, deep-ish environment, 50, 60 meters, but is uh, very low in oxygen. If you don't have oxygen and you bury something, the scavengers can't get to it and bacterial decay slows down or even halts altogether. So the combination of those factors, early burial or access uh, or absent of access uh, by predators and scavengers and, and decaying uh, organisms is going to enhance the capacity of the soft tissues in those, in those organisms. So you don't lose the soft parts. They're actually preserved, you know, for millions, hundreds of millions of years. You see, this is insane. <laughs> this is insane. The idea that you can have these impossibly ancient trilobites with not just the skeletons, but some of the soft tissue somehow that's not been... De- I mean, wouldn't their bodies have been full of bacteria like ours that yes. would then devour, devour the eyes and the flesh and the guts and what have you? I don't understand how that hasn't happened. Is it because it's so cold up there? Why? How, Diego? How has this not happened? So w- w- the reason for it happening is because in this early animal evolution world, the burrowers, the things that are capable of drilling into the sediment to access the buried things were not as powerful. They could go maybe 10 centimeters, maybe 20 centimeters, not not like today where we're very good, hyper-selected uh, uh, animals ha- are now capable of drilling, you know, probably tens of centimeters down into the sediment. Not only that... Sure, sure, but wouldn't they also have, like, bugs in their guts as well? They would, but because it's buried and there's less oxygen, it's basically like freezing the body. Why do we see mammoths? Because all the decaying processes are halted by the temperature. In this case, it's not temperature, it's lack of oxygen. So when, when you're digging and uncovering these fossils, that's, they have some of, what, the flesh intact? Can you, do you have eyeballs intact on some of these things? Not intact. They've been changed into a different mineral, but there's still the oh. information from the tissues. So it's not squishy. They have been replicated by minerals. In most cases, clay, which is the fine elements in, in the mud. Uh, and sometimes the carbon also in those organic tissues has blended with the clay and has produced the information, has replicated and kept that information. So we see... What a gift, Diego. What a gift. I mean, you know, we go and we try and replicate. We still don't really know what a T-Rex looked like, do we? And here you are. You're finding fossils that are vastly older than a T-Rex and you know kind of almost exactly what they look like. Yeah. They're like if they were trapped in between two, two glass slides, some of them. You can see the gut from the mouth to the anus. You can see the last meals inside the gut. You can see the muscles. You can see the skin, the eyes with all the lenses in this arthropods, they have um, uh, multiple lenses in their eyes, what we call compound eyes. Uh, You can see the nervous system, the circulatory, the blood vessels are preserved in very, very exceptional circumstances. And these, the Burgess shale, the Emu Bay shale, etc., Chengyang in China, Kaili, these are localities that preserved these complex animals in their entirety, not just the outside, but also the insides. So in covering these creatures... 
do they, does their strangeness hit you? I mean, they are, they, they, as you said earlier, they really don't have many creatures on the earth today that look anything like them. Are you struck by the weirdness of the things you're pulling out of the out of the top of the Rockies? Yeah, and and this happens in 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 Chingyang and also in Imya Bay. What we're looking at is a long lost world. Uh, it's a planet that has the earliest representatives of animals, and at the time, as we were saying before, evolutionists try many different things and see which ones work. And some of them work for a few generations, others for hundreds or thousands of generations, and others just evolve into something that looks familiar to us today. But when you look at them, some of them have, for instance, of Babinia is one of those emblematic uh, fossils from the Burgess shell. It's got five compound eyes in the head, big ones. It's got a trunk with spines at the end, and it's got flaps in the side of the body. It's a segmented <laughs> body wow. and, and a big tail at the end to propel it through the water. So there are some really, really weird things out there. And we they just look unfamiliar to us because they didn't make it, or the descendants didn't make it to, to day. So that's how amazing looking at, you know, past life and evolution is because they're showing us what this planet looked like, how different those animals were back, you know, 510 million years ago. Very different, very. So you mentioned their emu Bay shale. That's Kangaroo Island, isn't it? What, yes. Is that what brought you to Australia? Yes. Yeah, so in, in 2006, uh, there was a Cambrian conference here held in Adelaide and they organised a trip a long trip, want to see the Cayman of the Fleurio Peninsula, so just south of Adelaide, into Kangaroo Island, looking at the uh, Emu Bay Shale, what was originally discovered in the in the 40s and 50s. Uh, and they thought they had collected everything they they could from there. And they also took us to the Flinders Ranges and I saw Nilpina, Ediacara uh, fossil sites. On that trip, I realized that, wait a minute, this is a, a untapped resource. And I came to, to Emu Bay the following summer, uh, for winter, summer in uh, northern hemisphere terms. So in September, we came here and we dug up 300 meters south of the original site of Emu Bay. And we started pulling out complete soft-bodied uh, fossils, soft-bodied organism fossils. And that was the beginning of what now we know as, as probably one of the only soft-bodied fossil site in the Cayman in the whole Southern Hemisphere, and one of the best in the whole planet, which is right here in Australia, right here in South Australia, in KI. So these creatures you're, you're pulling out with soft-bodied tissue that's been mineralised, like like the rest of the body, they're dead, obviously. Do we know what killed them? I and mean, clearly, they have they died from starvation, or of, or I mean, have they got bites taken out of them? Do you can you see that? Yeah, some of them have evidence of predation on them. But we think this is a slightly different environment from the Burgess shale. The Burgess shale were animals living in the water column or in the on the surface of the sediment and then get washed into deeper waters where there's less oxygen and they it's like an avalanche of mud and they get trapped in the mud and they just, you know, they die. In our case, we think these organisms were living in a a somewhat isolated basin from the main open ocean. And what was happening is that slightly isolated basin was becoming stagnant. So the oxygen levels were low, and from time to time they would be so low, depleted in oxygen, that the animals would die in situ. And they would just lie there, and then sediment would snow on top of them and cover them. And because there was no oxygen, that's why we have the antennae and the legs of those trilobites. And then we have fully 100% soft-bodied organisms preserved in there because they just didn't decay and scavenge. 
alive and just couldn't get in there because there was no oxygen for them to move into that environment. God, it's so weird to think of creatures asphyxiating at the bottom of the ocean, isn't it? That's so strange, yeah. but that's what clearly what happened. When you say you've recovered trilobites, those those strange cockroachy, armoured-looking things, how big do some of these trilobites get? Well, uh, the most common ones are about two centimetres long, maybe Two and a half, but we've got, uh, we recently described a new species, uh, Relichia rex, which get to be about 25 plus centimeters in length. So these are the size of a dinner oh. plate. <laughs> so these are the largest trilobites known in the Cambrian in Australia. Huge beasts. I wouldn't want to put my finger uh, close to them. They, you would get a nasty bite, I can tell you. <laughs> they have spines on them, these things, don't they? Yes, yes. They have the base of their legs. So the legs are jointed like a modern day with, with, with a lobster, for instance. Or a, or a shrimp, and the first segment of that leg has got spines in the center of the body, and that's what they crush their preys with. And we, uh, and, and in some cases, even mineralized prey. So we're seeing what we call durophages, animals that are feeding on animals that have shells. So this arms race of the Cambrian is, you know, it's it's a winner eat, uh, a loser. And those losers, sometimes they were things with shells that th those shells weren't hard enough. So you're telling me these spines, they're like nutcrackers, in other words? Yes. They're like cracking open a lobster like we would in a Chinese restaurant, essentially. Absolutely the same. Right. That's what My the function God. of those short, stubby, strong spines are in the legs of trilobites. And not only that, what is more worrying is that we actually find religious that are crushed. And what we think is that other religious uh, they were feeding on their peers. So basically, uh, these were um, cannibals. We've got good evidence that religia was cannibalistic. They are the only ones that could have inflicted that sort of tears and breaking in the exoskeleton of other trilobites because they're really heavily armored. You just feed on anything that you can get your legs on in this case. Okay, so we've got trilobites eating other trilobites. Were there creatures bigger than the trilobites eating them? Yes. Uh, well, maybe not eating them because trilobites being very robustly uh, armoured and having spines on top of that, uh, maybe not them. But we know that arthropods need to go through a molt every so often in their lives. That's why trilobites are so common in the fossil record to some extent, because one single animal can produce 15, 20 different fossils. Whereas if that's a shell of a mollusk or a, you know, a snail, it's the same shell through the whole life. So that's one of the reasons why trilobites are common in the fossil record. But it also means that these things are very, very robust and they have spines to protect from other things. So there were bigger things in the Cambrian and the apex predator, as we understand it, were the what we call Anomalocaris. Anomalocaris, weird shrimp, that's the etymology of the name. Sorry, that name means weird yeah. shrimp? Anomalo means weird. <laughs> uh, caris is a shrimp or an arthropod. Right. What does this weird shrimp look well, like? Well, the reason yeah, it was called weird shrimp is because uh, they found the appendages and the appendages look like the tail end of a lobster with the segments and things poking out from under it. And they thought, wow, this is strange. We never find the head. We never find... And they had hundreds, if not thousands of specimens, never with the head. That's why it was, you know, named Anomalocaris, weird shrimp. Eventually, they realized that this was not the whole animal. This was just the head appendage. <laughs> and then they had a whole body with eyes, with a mouth that was also detaching from the rest of the body with molting and being fossilized separately, uh, head shield, etc. So that that big organism that was we thought was the animal, that appendage, is actually just the head appendage, 
uh, not the tail of the bo- of a body, but the head appendage of the whole animal. And the animal reached an excess of half a metre, 60 centimetres to 70. A 60 to 70 centimetre long shrimp? Good yes. God. Right. Yep. That's right. Wow. That's a big shrimp. Yeah, well, they were the epic predators of the time. We know that those spines were capable of predating on any soft organism uh, and probably some of the molted, recently molted uh, arthropods as well. So these were the great white sharks, uh, let's say, of the Cameron Seas. So there, there are species known as the radiodont, and I know dont means tooth or teeth, doesn't it? Yep. What does radiodont mean? So radiodont was uh, uh, a class defined or established by Des Collins, the one that invited me to the Burgess Shell, and he realized that the animalocaridids, so the animalocaris and its closest relatives, were very different from any of the arthropods we see today. And he proposed this new class that had radiodonts, meaning circular teeth, or their mouths are what we call oral cones. They're not you know, the pieces like you see in the mandibles of a, of a shrimp or a, an ant that can bite you, but these are circular plated uh, oral cones. And that's why he called them radiodonta, because their teeth, their mouths with teeth, were circular. Like like our mouths or a shark's mouth? Is that what you mean? Uh, it, no, it was it was like a, a like a pineapple. Let's put it. You you see the circle of the pineapple with the hole inside. Yeah. If instead of the of the fleshy part of the pineapple, you've got the, like the the tissue of your nails, slightly harder tissue. That is what they were chomping with. It was a circular one, and it was like like the the uh, aperture in a camera. It would just close, open, and close, and open and close, and that's what they were using to chomp on the organisms that they were grasping with those appendages yeah, go, in the head. You, you know, this is like you know that's a Freudian nightmare. That's that's Freudian <laughs> identifies. There's something being like, and I'm going to use a phrase here, called the vagina dentata that is something that apparently we're all terrified of in our dreams. So this is a perfect monster, this creature, in other it, words. It, it is a perfect monster. It was very capable <laughs> of swimming around. It got to really large sizes. They are very successful. We have, you know, maybe 40 different species across the globe, and they were everywhere. They were from, we find them in Canada, in China, in 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 Poland, in 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 Australia, of course. They were all over the planet. Very, very successful apex predators of the Cameron. So the these fossils that you're becoming more and more interested in are from the Ediacaran period. Now, this is the period before the Cambrian explosion. This is the cusp of uh, animal life emerging on the planet, is it? Most of them were originally identified as animals. But now that we know a little bit more about them, we see that there's things that are probably animals, like Kimberella. And there are things that are going towards animals but not quite there yet. We know that evolution is a slow process and you... Uh, uh, attain particular characters through your development or your evolution, and uh, those are diagnostic of animals. But you don't have all of them. So you can move, and that's something that animals do. Uh, So you can tick that box, but you might not have eyes or gut, which is typical of animals. Therefore, you're not quite an animal, but you're getting there. And that's the case of Dickinsonia. It's got bilateral symmetry, and it can move. But it was digesting, feeding differently from proper animals. So it's not, it, it cannot be actually named an animal as such. And besides Dickinsonia or Kimbrella, there's a, you know, another hundred or more species in the Ediacaran that are still, we're still struggling to put into the tree of life because they just do not fit the boxes we know for them. They're not, they're not proper animals and they're not plants and they're not fungi, but they're multicellular. It's, it's a very strange world, this one of the, uh, of the Ediacaran, even stranger than the Cambrian. 
You mentioned there that NASA has been interested in some of the research people in your field and you were, you, you are doing. Are they interested in these creatures that you're uncovering and researching, given that they are, dare I say it, like aliens to life as we know it today? Absolutely, absolutely. So um, we have applied for funding from NASA because NASA realises that if we go to a different planet, we're not going to see what we see around us today. We're going to see things that are hopefully multicellular, otherwise we wouldn't see the microbes. Uh, and if they are multicellular, they would look more like ediacrans than like, you know, the things we see around us today. So yes, that is that is one of the reasons why NASA is also, is interested in, in the discoveries of the Flinders Ranges, uh, in the ediacran discoveries of the Flinders Ranges. Uh, not only that, the last project we got from them is that we are looking at the sediments. Remember I mentioned at the beginning the microbial mats that are the base on which these ediacran fossils are found? Those microbial mats, we can identify them from looking at the side of the rock, right? So we are developing through artificial intelligence algorithms that might allow us to identify the presence of those microbial mats on side view of the beds. And we know that those sediments are present and we're getting pictures of, of those from the rovers that we've sent to Mars. Those sediments are present in, in, uh, in Mars, but we cannot go there and start you know, pulling those beds apart like we're doing the Flinders Ranges. So the way we might actually figure out if there was life, microbial life in Mars, is by looking at those contacts between sand layers. And because they peel off, like if there was a glad wrap, uh, you know, in between the beds, that's what we can do in the Flinders Ranges. That's why we turn the beds over and we've got the fossils underneath. And maybe something like that was present in, in Mars. We're never going to, well, never, I shouldn't say, I'm not going to be around by the time they send a paleontologist to Mars. But the way we can do it from a distance is by studying and trying to analyze the contact between beds in those photographs and see if we see similar things to what we see in the Ediacon environment, which is very different from the sands that we find once animals are around because we're drilling through those beds, right? So if NASA one day sends a probe to the surface of Titan, a probe that has a kind of a drill that can penetrate the icy crust, and below that icy crust they find in the oceans of water we know are on Titan, the moon of Saturn, they find strange creatures swimming around there. How excited would you be, Diego? And I think how suddenly <laughs> relevant would your profession be? Well, we know life is an, is an experiment. It's an experiment with many variables involved. If we rewind a tape of life to the beginning and we play it again, we would probably see something very, very different. And that's basically the exercise we would be checking that experiment in Titan would be a similar one. We go back to single cell life and play it all again and see how, you know, as we know, there's a lot of contingency, a lot of randomness in what happens to the planet. If it wasn't for the impact of the asteroid, mammals probably wouldn't have succeeded and we wouldn't be here. So that ex applied, you know, millions of times through the evolution of life in the planet just tells us how small a chance there is of something like what we see today with bipedal intelligent organisms changing their environment would be uh, would be happening in another planet. So if we go to Titan and we were to find, that would be, I would be the first one glued <laughs> to the screen to, and reading those papers because that's that's basically checking how uh, uh, right or wrong we were at interpreting what we see in the Ediacaran. But it would be the only thing that we've got to compare with. This has been completely fascinating, Diego. I've so enjoyed our conversation and thank you so much. Thank you so much, Richard. It's been my pleasure.
You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.